notice everybody who's come up on stage to share their testimony. Um, seeing a couple people step up on stage today was kind of interesting to me uh, because I remember the first time I stepped on stage, uh, my freshman year was with the, the men's flag football team. We just got back from Biola and we had won the uh, flag football championship there. By the way, we have a team going down about a week and a half to play down Biola again this year. This is my last year. I'd love to bring on the championship again to finish it off. So we're going to try our hardest. But my first time up ever in, on stage in chapel was with that football team and a group of 18 guys. And uh, I remember getting up there on stage and being a little nervous and going, man, this is kind of weird standing up in front of everybody. And then uh, a year later, then coming back with majesty and standing up in front of the pulpit and having the opportunity to share some special music and then to continue that in churches throughout my next couple of years here at college uh, was a good experience for me as well. But I don't know if you guys have noticed as well as everyone gets up here on stage and speaks and begins to speak, they always say, man, this is kind of a, a scary thing for me. I, as soon as I get up on stage, I, I don't know what to do. And uh, I just think it's so weird. And you know what? They're right, because it is a weird thing for me to get up here and stand in front of you guys this morning to be able to speak to you, uh, not as a preacher, not as a pastor, but as a student uh, who is more sharing his heart and what the Lord has been teaching me in the Word of God. And so I come to this time this morning very humbly, uh, but also very thankful for the opportunity that I have to be able to share with you. Um, as I think back on this week at chapels, it's been a great week. Bert and I came together about a month and a half ago to talk about the theme of this week. And uh, get, having get, been given a block of time, three chapels in a row, and choosing this theme of the cross, I think, has been very powerful. I know it's impacted my life and uh, impacted several people's lives. And I hope it has yours as well. Thinking back to Monday and what Mark described for us as the characteristics of Christ as he hung dying on the cross, we read that even during his last agonizing moments, Jesus retained his sinless perfection when he extended his love and forgiveness to those watching him die. Certainly the words from the cross are a powerful testimony of our Savior's love, even in his dying moments. On Wednesday, Bert preached about the work of the cross. From Romans chapter 6, he showed us that we are dead to sin and that it should not control us anymore. That we are united in one death and that we will be raised in one resurrection to God in Christ. What does the work of the cross demand of us from now and forever in this life? I think Corey sang it perfectly for us this morning. And by the way, Corey, wherever you're at, thanks for singing. That's my roommate. Uh, he's a great voice, huh? But as he's saying this morning, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. In the words of Alistair Begg, there's no sacrifice that can be too great to give back to our Savior because he's given us everything. Christ's, mandate, Christ's sacrifice for us mandates that we too sacrifice everything for him. His death for sinners requires that we die to sin. His resurrection and resultant victory over death assures our resurrection after this life into eternal glory. Christ died for us so that we might live for him. What I'm concerned about this morning, though, uh, isn't necessarily the words from the cross, although my message ties into that. It's not so much the work of the cross, as Bert exposited from Romans 6, although it will be concerned with some of that as well. What I'm concerned with this morning is that we draw our attention to the worth of the cross. But when we think of ascribing worth to the cross, sometimes it's nothing more than just a casual thanksgiving in our lives. Thank you, Lord, so much for our salvation. Thank you, Lord, so much that you saved me. Thank you that you're in my heart to stay, that kind of thing. But what we see in the Bible, what is meant by ascribing worth to the cross, as Scripture describes, is much more than just a casual thanksgiving. 
And that takes us to our text this morning. If you guys would turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. And as you're turning there, remember that I'm not concerned with focusing our attention. I am concerned with focusing our attention, I should say, on the worth of the cross. Better said, I think, the worth of the Christ who died on the cross. I don't want to worry about differing views of eschatology this morning. Revelation is a very complicated book. And for me to tackle it in in 30 minutes that I have here and to deal with all the views of eschatology would be very tough and probably very confusing to myself as well as to you guys. Um, I'm not concerned with that. I'm not concerned with maybe contrasting interpretations of the angelic beings or the elders that we're going to see and come up in chapter 5 and what they could mean and all that kind of thing. But what I'd like to simply do this morning is to take Revelation chapter 4 and 5 with the context of chapter 5 and to take a snapshot of what we see John's vision of being in heaven like to simply catch a glimpse of what our Savior is doing now after he's resurrected himself to heaven and what we see him doing there and what we see the activity of heaven uh, happening there in heaven as well to give you a little bit of background first of all uh, in chapter 1 just to bring you guys up to speed to where we're going to be at in chapter 5 in chapter 1 John introduces the book and then has a vision uh, where he's taken away in the spirit on the Lord's day and he has a vision of Christ, but this is a very different vision than the Christ that he sees, uh, that he knew when Christ lived on the earth. You have to remember that John is a disciple that Jesus loved. John is a disciple who laid his head on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. Very intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet when he sees him in this vision, in his glorified state, what does he do? He falls down dead, or like dead, before him because of the glorified state of his Lord. And he doesn't see him so much as a friend anymore as he sees him as his king and as his master. In chapters 2 and 3, we see that Christ dictates to John the seven letters which are to go out to the seven churches in Asia Minor, emphasizing their different strengths and weaknesses uh, in those different churches. And then in chapter 4, we begin our last vision, which carries on to the end of chapter 19. And that's the vision of of John and his vision of the future things, what's going to happen uh, in the things to come. We see in chapter 4 that he's carried into the throne room of God, again, the Spirit. And in verse 2, the first thing that he sees, I think this is very significant, the first thing that he sees is the throne itself. He doesn't get to heaven and he's not impressed with the streets of gold. He's not impressed with all the things that we think of being so magnificent in heaven. The first thing his eyes focus on is the throne of God and the one who sits on that throne. In verses uh, 3 and 4, or 2 and... Yeah, excuse me, verses 3 and 4, we see the ones around the throne, the 24 elders, seated on 24 thrones, around the throne, ruling and governing with Christ. Before the throne, we see in verses 6 through 8, the four living creatures, who we also see a vision of in Ezekiel 1, uh, kind of a cross-reference, the four creatures whose sole job it is to offer worship and praise to the one who sits on the throne. So as you see the context of chapter 4, it comes to a conclusion with the 24 elders around the throne and the four living creatures before the throne all falling down to worship the one who is on the throne. In verse 11, Worthy art thou, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. And so we get this view that John is seeing here of heaven, and everything is focused on the throne. Not only just around the throne, but every, all the activity that's happening is focused on the one who sits on the throne. So then we see, with all this activity, in chapter 5 we're introduced to another character in the throne room that John didn't see at first. 
In chapter 4, John emphasized the worship of the one throne. But in chapter 5, we see that same worship being given to another who is equally worthy of heaven's praise. Here in chapter 5, we find the worth of the cross and the worth of the sacrifice of the cross. And by that worthiness, guys, we find our worth this morning. There is, in my mind, no other singular biblical topic that is more assuring, more encouraging, and more affirming than the believer to take a fresh look at the window of heaven in John's vision in Revelation chapter 5 into the very throne room of God. Our hope as Christians hinges to a great extent on our assurance of the glory of heaven. Paul certainly taught that. If you guys think about a couple of scriptures in Paul's epistles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul instructs the church at Thessalonica not to grieve those believers who have passed away because eventually we'll be resurrected with Christ and we'll see them again. And why does he say this? That they might comfort one another with the hope of their future glory with Christ. Again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to the Corinthians there. And in chapter 15, verse 19, he says, If we have hoped in, in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most pitied. What is he saying there? He's saying, hey, if we're only going to hope in Christ for this life only, our faith is worthless. And we are of all men to be most pitied. Here we are living for the Christ who we have in this life only our hope and not in the life to come. And we're persecuted for it. What faith is that? What blessing is that? We see, uh, we see then that whenever we get in this life, we get down, we get distracted. And in the midst of this activity and buzz in life, we can often become discouraged. But what we need to do is look up and see our God as John saw him in heaven, high and lifted up. And realize that we will one day be where he is at. And to be encouraged with that. When we get down in this life, that's when we have to look up and see with the life that lies ahead. Our hope is found in Christ's resurrection, and not just to hope for this life only, guys, but for the life that is to come, the life everlasting. And what a comfort that is to us. What strength and encouragement can be gained from meditating on the very throne room of God, knowing that that's the place that we will spend the rest of eternity. And all these things, to me it's amazing, all of these things began with the work of the cross with Christ 2,000 years ago. So by stepping into the throne room of God this morning, Revelation chapter 5, I hope that we can see a portion of the glory in which God dwells and which in that same glory we will one day dwell with Him. So we begin in chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 4, we see heaven's question. Heaven's question. And I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? What is the scroll? Well, if you guys think about it and read ahead in the book, you see from chapters 6 to 19 the unfolding or the unsealing of these different scrolls and the contents therein. And while the scroll is secondarily a description of God's judgment on the earth as it's unleashed on the world, I think the scroll is primarily God's announcement of the consummation of history and how things will ultimately end for all of us. If we're saved, how the redeemed will finally be brought back to the Lord. If we're not saved, then how we will be judged. Again, it's God's announcement of the consummation of history and how things will end for all people, the judgment of the world for sinners and the final redemption of the saints. Since the fall of man, God has required a sacrifice to atone for sins. You know that. Man fell. God's holiness was violated. 
And as a result, we stood in direct violation of God's law and stood in direct line of his wrath. Man needed help, and God's desire was to restore man to his previous sinless state. So he provided a plan for man's redemption, and we see that in this scroll. God himself is seen sitting on the throne, extending the offer to anyone who is worthy, either in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, to take the scroll of his redemptive plan and to do the work necessary to accomplish the plan therein. The strong angel sounds forth the call in verse 2, in which we see him saying, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And to get and guess what? As he scans the earth, as he scans heaven, as he scans the things below the earth, he finds no one worthy. It's as if he looks straight at each one of us on this earth and passed right by us because none of us were worthy. And he looked at all of us that have gone on before and none of them were worthy. And as the angel looked at all the angelic beings, at the elders, the angels, the four living creatures, none of them were worthy, though they were perfect. God looked at and then looked past each one of us for someone else to perform the work of his redemption because none of us are worthy. And an interesting point that, that Harley Howard brought up last week, he's been referred to a lot, I think it's because Bert and I love him so much, but uh, Harley made the point that not only is there not any one of us that would, would, have, want to, would have died on the cross that day, there isn't one of us that even deserves the benefits of the work of that redemption. And that's an amazing thought to me. And so we see in, in chapter or in verse 4, John's response. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. This caused John to weep bitter, bitterly, literally to wail out loud. Uh, and with good reason, I think. My friends, if you can just imagine for a second the Bible ending here in verse 3, chapter 5 of Revelation, it would be a very, very sad story. No one is worthy is John's cry. He can't find anyone and if the story ended here, then redemption's plan is completely wasted because there would be no agent to accomplish God's work. If there was to be no one to answer the angel's challenge, then all of us would be subject to the wrath of God, and we all suffer forever under the full measure of God's indignation against us. John wept bitterly because he realized this. He realized man's utter helplessness before a holy and just God. Not one was found worthy to open the book. But praise God that the story doesn't end here. As John wept, one of the elders approached him in the next verse and told him to stop weeping because there was one that was found capable, one who was worthy. And in response to heaven's question came heaven's answer in verses 5 through 7. Heaven's answer. Read with me in, in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. I realized really quickly that the, the number seven is the number of perfection. It's referred to throughout Revelation consistently as a number of perfection. The horns in Jewish custom refer to power, and the eyes refer to his all-knowing, his omniscience, his omnipresence. And so we see that uh, the lamb has perfect power and perfect intellect, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came, the lamb came, and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. We see two characteristics of uh, the lamb's worthiness. First of all, in verse 5, we see his heritage. His heritage. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, first of all. Judah was one of the sons of Jacob, uh, in the Old Testament, if you guys turn to Genesis chapter 49 with me quickly, 
Genesis chapter 49, in verse 8. Judah was the, the fourth, actually, of the twelve sons of Jacob. And Jacob, in this passage, is, is relaying all the blessings and all the inheritances, uh, the prophecies, so to speak, of the different sons. And in verse 8, we find Judah's blessing. Judah, your, blo- your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The account of Judah's significance in Genesis chapter 49 is significant because he was prophesied by his father Jacob to be the lion that no one would dare arouse, the one from whom God would give the scepter to rule forever and the authority that the people might obey him. This prophesied of Christ's everlasting dominion and power as we see it unfolded now in Revelation chapter 5. And secondly, not only is he the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is the root of David. The root of David. The Old Testament prophecies foretold of a coming Messiah who would rule the earth. This is all the Jews longed for in the Old Testament. Joel read this morning from Isaiah 53. It's interesting now that as the Jews look back at that passage, they tend to ignore it because the significance and the strong parallels between uh, Isaiah 53 and Jesus Christ the Messiah are too strong for them to admit uh, that significance and so they just generally toss it out. But I appreciate Joel reading that because it's a, such a strong picture of the Messiah that was to come. And before Jesus came, it was all that they looked for, it was all that they longed for, the Messiah that would take away the sins of the world and restore uh, Israel to his place of prominence. They foretold the Messiah coming from the line of David also. When the elder called Christ the root of David then, he again affirmed his kingly authority, and he told John that this powerful king has overcome and was found worthy to break the seals and to open the scrolls. Secondly, not only do we see his heritage in verse 5, but we see his humility in verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John was comforted by the elder. Notice carefully with the assurance there was one who was able to open the scroll of God's redemptive plan and power, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. But what is fascinating to me is how we find that sacrifice appearing to us and how he represents himself. In the midst of all the immense glory of heaven, with the throne exalted on high, the 24 elders surrounding the throne, the four living creatures all falling down and bowing in worship and shouting out with a loud voice, Worthy art thou, O Lord our God. We find out of the midst of all of this walks a lamb as if slain. It is not a king that John sees. It is not the mighty lion as the elder described him. The one who is worthy to take the scroll from God's hand, break the seal, and accomplish our redemption forever is a lamb that was slain. My challenge to you this morning, everybody, is that we might never see Jesus as just the king without seeing him also as the sacrifice. But we never see Jesus as only the lion without first seeing him as the lamb, because that's how he's depicted here. This also caused me to think a little bit, too. I wonder if, if any one of us possessed the keys to man's eternal redemption and had that to ourselves and had that privilege to ourselves, how would we approach the throne? 
How do we approach the throne of grace every day in prayer? Do we approach it like Christ approached it, as a lamb? Humbly, meekly, accepting the role that God had for him? Or do we pray flippantly, kind of on the spur of the moment? Maybe pridefully, without confessing our sin? We are all utterly unworthy to stand before God's throne at all. And we would do well to follow the example of Christ here in verse 6, to come humbly before the throne. Well, he comes in verse 7 then and takes the scroll out of God's hand. And then we see heaven's response in verses 8 through 14. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. First of all, we see the response of the throne room itself in verses 8 through 10. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. It's interesting, as soon as the Lamb, Jesus Christ, takes the scroll from God's right hand, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, which previously had been seen ascribing greatness to the Lord uh, on the throne in chapter 4, all of a sudden turn their attention and start to describe that same glory and that same worship to the Lamb. In chapter 4 of 11, we see the elders and the living creatures falling down before him who sits on the throne. And now in these two verses, we see the same worship being offered to Jesus Christ. Notice the song they sing to him. Again, I'll read it. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Why did they worship Jesus? Why was there this sudden shift in their worship to the lamb that was slain? Exactly for that reason, because he was slain. Because of the substitution of Christ's death for ours, which is what we deserve, we avoid the punishment for our sin. God's justice and holiness had to be rectified. And the only one to do that had and the one to do that had to die a bloody death on the cross. The atonement of Christ is literally him taking all of the punishment for all human beings for all time at that singular moment at his death. Listen carefully to this quote. It is not that Christ took away God's wrath but that he had endured God's wrath for us. If all of us were to get in a line and one by one place our sins on Christ on the cross, and then God, after all of those sins have been heaped on him, looks down on seeing our sin on his body, then executes the full weight of his wrath on him, then that would be an accurate picture of the substitutionary atonement. The only thing would be that if you just take 800 of us in this room and place all those sins on his body on the cross that wouldn't even begin to compare with all the sins of all humanity from, age, from all the ages past all the ages future until the end of time that my friends is the meaning and the significance and the power of the cross that through one man came the forgiveness of all but we see that heaven, the heavens worship Christ because he was the lamb that was slain we also see that he was worshipped because he purchased us and made us priests. We see this at the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. With his blood he purchased our pardon and handpicked for himself a people forever. 
We were once gods before the fall, and since then we have fallen away from fellowship with him. But he has bought us back. He has redeemed us back to himself and will make us priests and kings at that time. It's interesting to me, too, that in the Old Testament times, uh, with the deed of an inheritance, uh, the, the person who had the inheritance sometimes would lose that to slavery or to some kind of hardship. And the only way that they could get that inheritance back was to buy it back and to purchase it back from someone. In that same way, applying that Jewish culture to this, this theme right here, we see that this scroll is in certain ways the inheritance that God has on each one of us rightfully because before the fall, we belong to him in sinless perfection. Sin destroyed that perfect communion, that perfect fellowship that we had. And Christ, through God, mandated that he has to die on the cross to purchase us back. And now that he's purchased us back as Christians this morning, all we have to look forward to in glory is to rule with Christ as kings and to worship with Christ as priests. It's an amazing thought to think that we will occupy the rest of our eternal lives simply ruling with Christ and worshiping him forever. It's a very simple but profound thought this morning. That's the, that's the response from the throne room. Those beings that were directly related around the throne. Now let's take a look at the response from all of heaven combined. We see that in verses 11 and 12. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Notice in, in, verse, in this verse, in, in verse 11, that as the 24 elders and the four living creatures respond in song to the Lamb who holds the scroll of the redemptive plan of man, then immediately John begins to hear other voices join in. And these are the voices of the angels numbering myriads upon myriads, thousands of thousands, millions and millions, innumerable amounts of angels all gather immediately around the throne as well and shout aloud the praise of God. And I think there's something very significant in the fact that they didn't sing this, they shouted it. When the worship of the Lamb is echoed around the throne, it begins with the organized discipline chords of song. But as it progresses and the hosts of angels continue to add their voices to the throng, we see that in all of the excitement, in all of the beauty of the worship, their song breaks. They stop singing and they can do nothing but shout, worthy is the lamb that was slain. If you guys think about this for a second, and you think about maybe, uh, I, I, the first thought that came to mind for me was, was a basketball game. And having played basketball through high school and now watching a men's basketball team play sometimes, uh, the gym is packed and the blues is going nuts and they'll do some kind of organized deal um, and they'll do some kind of organized cheer and then someone will throw, throw a dunk home and all of a sudden everyone goes nuts. And all the, the organized organization of it goes gone instantly. And everyone just starts shouting. That's exactly the same kind of picture that we see in heaven here. Those people that were gathered around the throne directly sang a new song to the Lamb. But as more and more people came in and gathered in, and more and more angels gathered in, the response was that their song broke and a shouting began. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. So we see the response from all of heaven. And then lastly, in verses 13 and 14, we see the response from all creation. The response from all creation in verse 13. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. 
the worship of the Lamb, which is building throughout chapter 5, is escalated to its peak in verse 13. And this is the most beautiful part of the whole passage, I think. Out of these two chapters, I think this is the most beautiful. When all of creation joins all of heaven in universal worship, all things combined join in worship of the Lamb and the one who sits in the throne. The glory ascribed in chapter 4 to the Father is harmonized perfectly with the glory ascribed to the Son in chapter 5. And when all is said and done, aided by the Holy Spirit, every created thing will ascribe worship to the Godhead. That God would provide redemption's plan for mankind to be saved, and that God would provide a means for that salvation for all of us through Christ is an amazing thought to me. Certainly, Corey's hymn again comes to mind, Amazing Love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? If you guys find no other encouragement this morning in what I've said, and nothing else thrills your soul more from this passage, then know this. Look at chapter 13 and see the universal worship of God and know that that is exactly what we're going to be doing for the rest of eternity in heaven. The old, and the old things are done away with then we see the, the perfection of worship taking place throughout all of eternity. Not just to the one who sits in the throne, but also to the Lamb. I would make this point also. Christ forever and all through eternity will bear the marks of our sin that He took upon the cross that day. He will always be seen as the Lamb. And the fact that He will always be seen as the, as the Lamb will always be a reminder to us of the great redemptive work that he's performed for each one of us individually in this room and then for all Christians from eternity past and for all the Christians that we will have a hand in saving and all the Christians that will be saved as a result of other people sharing the gospel. It's a great thing to see the power of God and the power of the Lamb but you know what? It's really interesting to me to see the continuing humility of Christ even as he's being ascribed greatness in heaven and that's how it will be forever. That's what we have to look forward to. That is the worth of the cross. If I could quote Corey one more time from his hymns that he sang. I'm so thankful that he sang these because more and more thoughts just keep coming to mind. And with this we'll close. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be? Yes. And his response is, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled and, humbled and amazed this morning that you would ever take the time to formulate a plan that would so magnificently save us. That you would provide a plan for our redemption and then that you would provide the Redeemer. We thank you so much for the Lamb that was slain for our sins and took the punishment that we deserved on his body on the cross that day. And I thank you that you've not left us alone here. Now that your Son is in heaven, seated at your right hand, I thank you that you've given us your Spirit that indwells each one of us to guide us into all truth, to assist us in our sanctifying process, and to one day carry us home to be with you. Father, I can think of no greater blessing, of no greater encouragement, of no greater hope 
than to know that whatever happens in this life, no matter what hardships or joys we encounter, we can always look to you and to the Lamb that was slain and rejoice because we know that one day we will be there with you, worshiping you forever. Father, I pray that you give us a perspective that would never cease to be amazed, never cease to stand in awe at the wonder and the power of the cross. Lord, I pray that we would live out the example that Christ left on the cross as he spoke those words from the cross. And I pray that we would manifest each one of those sayings and each one of those characteristics in our lives every day. And Father, I pray that we would die to sin daily. That we would take those things which tempt us and those things to which we succumb and to nail those to the cross and to leave it there with you, having it had already been forgiven so that we can claim victory and move forward for your glory. And Father, I thank you so much for the worth of the cross as it pertains to our future. And I would echo the words of John at the end of chapter 22. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and take us home to be with you. But while we are here, we pray that we would be steadfast and immovable, that we would abound in every good work. Give us strength to do that, we pray this day. In your son's name I pray. Amen.